Welcome, everybody, to the No Relation NFL Podcast with Matt and Bill Williamson. This is our second go at it. Um, I'm at the Dallas Cowboys training facility for training camp. Matt has been at the Steelers. He's going to be there more a lot this year, so we have a lot to talk about. Matt, what's, have you been to the Steelers yet, or is that coming? That is coming. I've been to okay. – I did four days at minicamp down there at the facility, and I am going to be at the Steelers training camp pretty much all day Thursday, all day Friday, and then the week after that will be all day Wednesday, all day Thursday, and spend the night up there both those nights and do some broadcasts and whatnot and you know, see, the, see the scoop. But uh, I've been keeping in the loop, though, that's for sure. Cool, cool. I've, uh, I went to the Raiders on Sunday, again, Cowboys today. Both teams look pretty good. You know, I think both teams have a chance to be – Pretty good. I, I, you know, I think a key to the Cowboys, you know, we talked about the Raiders a little bit last week, the key to the Cowboys is that offense. I'm writing today about the urgency of the offense. There's a lot of talent on this offense, and it got better in the offseason. But they have to stay healthy. What do you think about this group? You know, I, I think they have potential to be one of the best offenses in the league. They have the best offensive line in the league. I love that they've put such premium resources into offensive linemen. That makes a lot of problems go away. However, here's my concerns, is they're so dependent in the passing game on Romo and Des Bryant. And that's wonderful. They're, they're very good players. And we saw what happened, though, when one or both gets hurt last year. I mean, they don't win any games. I mean, when Romo's not there, they don't win any games. And that would be the same for the Packers or, or the, you know, whoever. I mean, obviously a, a borderline starting Hall of Fame quarterback goes down is a big deal. But the only reason I mention it with, with him more than any other is of the 32 starting quarterbacks in the league right now, the, the last guy that I would put a chip on to play all 16 games is Tony Romo. Not to mention, Des Bryant's also coming off injuries, and you saw him. I mean, I'm, I'm, my hunch is he looks great. But there's just not much else at the receiver position, and Witten is declining. You know, I mean, he's still a, a contributor, but he's not a difference maker. So if Des or Romo is out, all of a sudden I look at the Cowboys and say, their defense isn't very good, let's load up to stop the run, and they're pretty easy to play against. I mean, of course you could say that about all the teams. Though. I mean, if, if Odell Beckham's out, it's the same thing. If Julio Jones is out, I mean, it's the same thing. But I just don't trust Romo to stay healthy. Well, and he's getting up there in age. Um, you know, right. Garrett Cox A multitude of injuries, not just the latest one. Right. Garrett talked today about the passion of his quarterback. He says nobody's got more passion than this guy. So, you know, you get the feel that Romo knows exactly what you're talking about and knows that his time, you know, the clock is ticking, and he's going to try to take advantage of it this year. I mean, if it's not this year, there's not many more years to come. And I think that makes sense, and I think Jerry Jones realizes that, and that's why they take Elliott over a defensive player, which isn't what I would have done. I would have taken Jalen Ramsey. Um, I think they would have loved to have gotten Goff or Wentz or Bosa, and they weren't there. Uh, I can understand the Elliott pick, but to me that's just a little bit too much living for today. But, I mean, I think they realize that they're a go-for-broke type of team. And they're going to try to take some of the stress off Romo's shoulders because their shoulders are fragile. Right, right. 
Talk about fragile. We started camp around the week during the weekend. And there's hey, Bill, I want to interrupt you real quick, though. There's one other note I wanted to make on the Cowboys, though. I haven't said much positive about them. But if, if you look at their schedule, very favorable. You know, I mean, I, I think that is a huge feather in their cap. They have a very favorable schedule. And their division's very favorable. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to pick someone to win the East, they're as good as any. Right. I mean, there's not really a better option, is there? I don't know. I mean, I really think their defense is bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where the pass rush comes from. Can Sean Lee stay healthy? That's a huge key for them. But I'm not – I don't think there's a contender in that division. You know, you look around the NFC, Seattle, Arizona, Green Bay, Carolina, those to me are – maybe Minnesota – are Super Bowl contenders. I don't see one in the East. But I also don't think there's a team in there that's going to pick top five overall unless Romo goes down. If one of them is going to be a disaster, right. it could be Dallas. Right. So it's going to be similar to last year. Because, I mean, it, it yeah. wasn't a super competitive division last year. You know, like, I like Washington, but their schedule is so much harder this year than it was a year ago. Interesting, interesting. Well, hey, getting back to the injury point, we had, we had a couple um, – Pretty tough injuries in the AFC North in the defensive backfield. Uh, Goldson goes down with the Liz Frank and uh, William Jackson, the number one pick of the Bengals, is likely out for the year with a pec injury. Uh, what's what's your first thoughts on those injuries? Well, the Jackson one, it, it, my, they would never admit this, but my hunch is in Cincinnati on draft day they wanted to take a wide receiver. And those three guys fell right before they picked. You know, Fuller, Mm -hmm. Coleman, um, Treadwell. I mean, there wasn't a receiver there for them to jump on. So they're a team that more so than just about any team in the league, except for maybe Minnesota, who is a Zimmer from Cincinnati bringing that philosophy, uses high picks on corners. They do it year after year after year. And I get it. I mean, it's a premium position. Those guys are expensive. You'd rather, you know, have a, a guy like Jackson or Dennard on a four- or five-year deal than going out in free agency and needing corners. So I think they just kind of said, okay, well, our, our receivers aren't there. Best player on the board is Jackson. We'll always can use another first-round corner. But they really didn't need it. It wasn't like their corner situation was desperate. Where the Steelers well, they take a corner in the first round every year. <laughs> right. And some hit and some don't. But – where the Steelers have been the opposite. I mean, no team before last year, the earliest pick they used, uh, the first pick in the top two rounds they used on corner was Ricardo Coakley from Tusculum, and that was like 15 years ago. I mean, they were the total opposite before last year, and in the past two drafts they've used a second-round pick and a first-round pick on corner. So they're changing their philosophy. They used to put all their resources other places. Let's our, our corners are just don't get beat, come up and tackle, keep everything in front of you, be smart, and learn the scheme. And I think they're changing. So, you know, I mentioned that I hadn't been to Steelers camp, and the guy that I wanted to see more than anyone, more than the rookies, more than Ladarius Green, was Golson because we saw zero from him last year, and I thought he was a great player in college that – if he were, he's 5'8", though. I mean, to me, that, that's the always going to be the drawback with the guy. But he was the starting slot corner for the Steelers as camp broke, and I know they're very high on him. People there love his aggression, love his ball skills, love him as a slot corner, which is really a starter nowadays. And it's really unfortunate because it's going to be, it doesn't sound like he's done for the year. It sounds like it's a Liz Frank. It's probably 12 weeks. 
So what's he return? Maybe week eight, week ten, something along those lines. And those are tricky injuries, what, though. They can, can those injuries yeah, can linger. That's a very good point. And in the meantime, what they're doing is their second round pick from this year, Davis, who's much more safety than corner and a way different type slot player than Golson, who's much smaller and much more agile, quick. That's who's manning the slot right now. So at least they have somewhat of a backup plan. They're deeper in the secondary than they've been. But, uh, you know, it's a shame. I I want to see the guy in the field. Right. Now, you know what it is? It's a reminder to us that how sucky this league is. You know, guys get injured. I mean, it's not – it's, you know, August 1st, August 2nd, and guys are being lost for the year in camp. And, and you know, when we talk next week, we're going to be talking about three or four other guys that are going to be out. It's just, it's just a terrible reality of the league, and it happens as soon as camp starts. That's an awesome point, and I always go out of my way. I don't think you and I have had this conversation because we've been on a podcast together, but I'm sure we've mentioned it off the air and whatnot. And when I'm on, when I'm on the radio, basically from – when free agency dies down until about a week ago, I, you know, and I'm on the radio across the country and doing podcasts and whatnot, that I always like to mention to fans, guys, this is the best your team is going to look. 90 to, right. 90% of things that happen to your team from a week ago until the Super Bowl is bad. <laughs> it's not like you know, everyone thinks that – Oh, we're going to be healthier this year. We got to be healthier. They had so many. They had so many injuries last year. They're, they'll be fine this year. All these guys return. Well, people get hurt. I mean, people get hurt like crazy. You know, they'll say things like, "Oh, well, we got you know, we got this guy. He's healthy. Well, he falls on the stairs or blows out his knee. Everything's bad from now on." Or, "Oh, we used a first round pick on that position. That problem solved." Well, that guy doesn't hit. You know, <laughs> rookies don't come in and make immediate impacts. Or, uh, we, we just signed a, a big money free agent, so our pass rush is all solved. But he doesn't play that well. You know, I mean, nothing's good really from now on. No, I mean, look at last year with Fowler in, in, in Jacksonville, number three pick, and right. the next weekend, a, a dang rookie camp, a rookie camp, and, and he's lost for the year. Kevin White, and that, Perriman, you know, all these highly talented guys that were rookies, you know, first-round picks, and they don't even get on the field. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a brutal business. It really is. And, and, and you're right, the the surprises are 95 percent bad in this league. Right. I mean, unless you win the Super Bowl, everyone else leaves the season unhappy, and a lot of it's because of all the bad things that happen with injuries and what. Yeah, exactly. Hey, well, last week there was uh, right before, right as camps were starting, three teams extended their general managers, and as a guy who's a former employee of teams, you probably like to see that. We saw Rick Smith in Houston. John Schneider a little bit before that in Seattle, and Reggie McKenzie in Oakland. Um, all pretty deserving, you think? I mean, pretty obvious, especially Schneider and McKenzie. Yeah, absolutely. And you're obviously very, very close to the Raiders situation. Uh, we haven't mentioned this, but I, I started a new podcast. It's a locked-on NFL podcast. Um, and I talked about it quite a bit today with the Texans and Raiders situation on that pod. Um, the Seattle one is about as much of a no-brainer as you can get. You know, I mean, <laughs> Schneider's established himself as an elite guy at what he does. But I mentioned about McKenzie, and this is something you obviously know very well. He came over from Green Bay as a draft-only background, but he gets there, and the Raiders are in total disarray. They have gobs and gobs of cap room, so he has to go use it on free agency. 
Well, he didn't do it well, but if you remember his early plan, when nobody wanted to play for the Raiders, I mean, they were a desolate franchise when he took over. I mean, That only changed about a year ago. Nobody wanted to be there until about a year ago. Yeah, and now they have a quarterback, and now they're building, and now people want to go there. But what he was smart to do as he was building so well through the draft with Khalil Mack and Carr and Amari Cooper and all those guys, Gabe Jackson – was he didn't give out massive money and overspend on, quote, high-priced free agents. Instead, he, he gave money to one- and two-year deals so that it didn't strap him for now when he had that foundation. So now he's adding quality guys like Osemele and Irvin and even Crabtree before that are working out great. And he's still going to have tons of spend. And you look at their roster, uh, you know, next year I think they could use a running back and I think they could use a true – middle linebacker, leader of the defense. But they're like the two easiest spots to find on the field. You know, he, he really has set himself up well. They could have Leonard Fournette next year. And then in Houston, I really think he's done a tremendous job, too. I mean, I'm not an Osweiler fan, but that's a very good roster. Yeah, I think if there's a ding on McKenzie, I think they could have gotten to this point. And when I say this point, a team that many people think can make a serious playoff run, last year there was some – there were some bad moves that he made, you know, the 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 Woodleys and the and and, and the Flynn and, and stuff like that. Um, but you know, overall, he's done a good job. And I think that what stands out about McKenzie is that he is the definition of a rising stock. He's not getting an extension for what he did. He's getting an extension of what he set the team up to do. And that doesn't happen in today's NFL anymore. I mean, you get two or three years. And he's going into his fifth year, and he's 18 and 46. Wow. That's a record that gets people fired, usually without much thought. But he's getting an extension, and it's because of what he set up. And it's just, it, it's, it, you know, it's interesting. He, I think Mark Davis gets a lot of credit for, for sticking with him and having the patience. And, and Reggie does get credit for building a potential winner. Yeah, I very much agree. And. You know, growing up in Pittsburgh and seeing three head coaches in my 43 years on this planet in Pittsburgh and, you know, very little change compared to any other team, I'm very much a believer. And then going through what goes on in Cleveland where there's more change like crazy and, you know, getting let go and only lasting a year, I'm very much a believer in hire the right people originally and keep them for as long as you can. And I think in all three of these cases with the general managers, that stability is huge. Yeah, and, and it's stability that Oakland definitely needs because, I mean, the Raiders, Jack Del Rio is their eighth head coach since 2004. So there hasn't been stability there, but there's now stability in the front office, and, and, that, and that's really going to help. Now, I want to change gears a little bit to extension on the field for a player, and that's Tyron Matthew gets a deal today. What a great story. So deserving. And what a, you know unbelievable road this guy has taken. Really is. And I don't know. He was a big name, obviously, at LSU and got a lot of publicity for the wrong reasons coming into the league. But I don't know that the average fan realizes how good he is at football. I mean, he is right. potentially the best safety in the league, not named Earl Thomas. And he's potentially the best corner in the league. <laughs> I mean, it, he, he's, he's unbelievable, and they use him in so many ways that there really isn't another guy like him. You know, that Patrick Peterson, maybe Patrick Peterson's better than him. I mean, I think Patrick Peterson's the best corner in the league, and he's a lockdown on your number one receiver. But because of that, Matthew gets to roam all over the field, 
And I think this is a huge sign to us. You know, if you, you read between the lines, they must have no concerns about his injury. So that's huge because this team likes to play with six defensive backs probably more than any team in the league. You know, they, they want light, fast personnel. Deion Buchanan is a linebacker, is really a big safety. And they're going to blitz like crazy, and they're going to be fast. And they lost a few guys. You know, I mean, it's bound to happen. And if Matthew were not in the equation, uh, that you could see that really hurting this team early on. You know, the rest of the secondary outside of Peterson suspect. But this contract tells me that he must be healthy. He's worth every penny. Uh, and really, it, it is a great story, like you mentioned. Yeah, because we just we just don't see too many stories like like his where a guy has is in legit trouble and he turns it completely around in every facet. He seems like a fantastic kid, and it's just uh, we should all applaud it. And, and it's so refreshing because we just don't see it much. And, and and sadly, that segues me to two really talented players who haven't figured it out. Two guys who instead of being in camps are are reportedly in rehab centers, and 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 that's. Alden Smith of Oakland and Randy Gregory of these Cowboys. I mean, that, that, that's tough for teams to to deal with, isn't it? I mean, I know it's you, you got to get these guys right, but I mean, it's it's what a blow, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, if you if you take the football out of it, you know, I, I feel for the young men. They're they're obviously dealing right. with something that there is is you know very hard for anyone of any age to deal with. I give them credit for recognizing the problem as human beings and trying to correct their faults. Um, you know, I don't look at it like, boy, he's a terrible human being because he's uh, an alcoholic or he's addicted to drugs or something along those lines. And I give them credit for, you know, stepping up and trying to solve things. Gregory obviously fell in the draft because of concerns like that. And he's not, you know, he's an okay, he's a good player, he's a decent prospect, but he has never wowed me at the NFL level. You know, where Alden Smith was great. <laughs> you know, I mean, as you remember, I mean, at his best, he was a Von Miller-like pass rusher. You know, I mean, he was one of the oh, best. Oh, he was dominant. He was one of the best defense players in the league his first two yeah, years. Yeah, and His numbers have really dipped, and obviously we know why, because he had so many personal issues. Sure, sure. But, I mean, I, always, I keep coming back to, you know, from a football perspective, what if you could put him up as a Khalil Mack? I mean, wow. And, and that still could happen. It could. I, I really applauded the Raiders for the way they handled his situation this weekend. Both uh, Jack Del Rio, the coach, and, and McKenzie, the GM, said, hey, this is not. This is about the guy first, not the player, and we're not even worried about it. I mean, the earliest he's going to be on the field is November, and I think that is very much in limbo now. And, and the Raiders get it. They don't seem to be worried about that. They just want this kid who – keeps putting himself in bad situations and, you know, putting his his life in jeopardy. I, I, mean, I hate to sound so dramatic, but a kid who's been to rehab at least twice, been arrested five times in three years span, not even 27 years old, so, went from a great player to who knows what, you know, it's who cares about football at this point? They just got to get him right as a human being. Yeah, and then to look at it from a football perspective, too, you know, as a human factor, he has an opportunity that 0.1% of the population has and is kind of flushing it down the toilet to some degree. You know, I mean, if he was a, let's say he was a fifth or sixth round pick that was 
a borderline player or an average player, a special teamer, backup linebacker, and did all these things, there's no way he'd be in the league. You know, I mean, nobody would even touch him a 10-foot pole at this point. This guy was picked four spots ahead of J.J. Watt. Right, and it doesn't didn't look like a bad pick. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, tough. Hey, going back to uh, Matthew for a second, you know, the, the next big deal for safety is probably going to be Eric Berry. You know, he's out of camp right now, you know, with the whole franchise tag thing. Who deserves a bigger deal in your eyes? Who's the better player, the bigger impact for the team? I know you talked so highly of Matthew a few minutes ago. Matthew, to me, you know, just because he can do everything, you know, I mean, I guess he's a little less trustworthy because injuries, potential off-the-field problems, although it seems like he's past that. But it's not like very super clean either from a, you know, a, a physical standpoint from his history. Um, both are great. If I were to rank, I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but if I were to rank every defensive player in the league, I'd go J.J. Watt, Aaron Donald, and then Matthew would be in the conversation with 10 or so other guys to be you know, in, in that A-minus tier or A tier. Um, and I would put Barry right below that. He'd be in the next tier. So both are highly, you know, desirable. They're franchise-type guys. They're game-changers. Both are tremendous stories, too, like you mentioned. But I'm curious. This leads me to my next question, though. I mean, and you have serious AFC West ties. First of all, the Fisher contract, the left tackle, made no sense to me. You know, I mean, it, it comes across that he had $30 million guaranteed. If you would have told me before I read that that the Chiefs locked up Eric Fisher for the next X amount of years, I forget how many it is, how much guaranteed money would he would he got? I would have said ten, twelve, something along yeah. those lines. They give him thirty million guaranteed and don't lock up Eric Berry. Yeah, heck of a point. I mean, that can't be a hey, let's just take let's cover up our own mistake here because he's the number one pick. Because I mean, Eric Berry was a number five pick. Eric, you know, different regime, but Eric right. Berry clearly means more to the franchise than, than Eric Fisher, who's made. Some decent strides, but certainly nowhere close to being, you know, being worthy of the number one pick, and certainly nowhere close to being a top-level left tackle. He's improved. I mean, you had a good point. I mean, he was this regime's first pick. You know, I mean, that was their first draft class. He was a regime that's done really well, by the way. What's that? A regime that has done very well. I mean, the Chiefs they have. went from two and fourteen. To having winning records in all three years and being eleven and five and making the playoffs twice, Dorsey and, and Reed are doing well. Yeah, I think Reed's a, a high-end coach. Um, but to go back to it, Fisher was a first overall pick in the worst draft class probably in the last ten or twenty years. Yeah, I mean, even yeah, that when was, it was too exciting. Terrible. I mean, him and Jokel both have been blah. Jokel's been bad. There's been injury with him. But even whenever they were coming out and they looked, quote, like the best players in their class, all of us said, boy, this is a terrible draft class. So it wasn't their fault that he was, quote, the best guy in the draft. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the J.J. Watt draft that we just talked about that had Alden Smith and right. Julio Jones and A.J. Green and Cam Newton and J.J. Watt and, you know, loaded with studs. So they yeah, took 13. the best of the worst crop, but, and he's gotten better. But he's not one of the best left tackles in the league. Yeah, you know, that's a great point about that 13 draft. I mean, it goes Fisher, Jokel, Jordan, you know, and who can't, 
you know, who's another guy who's had off the field issues. I think that draft rivals the 09 draft for being just putrid. I mean, look up this, that 09 draft. That first two rounds is brutal. Yeah, and the quarterbacks in that draft are Geno Smith, E.J. Manuel. I mean, there's not even like a franchise quarterback from the crew. Yeah, yeah. So there was a tough year to have a high pick because you know that was the Chiefs were like, oh my God, we got the high, we got the number one pick. Well, last year it was uh, Andrew Luck was number one, and you know RG three, who at that point was a superstar, was number two, and they're like, we got we get to pick between these two average left tackles. <laughs> right. I mean, what if Luck stays in school an extra year? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Talking about a bust, uh, poor Trent Richardson. I get cut by the Ravens today. This is probably it for him, wouldn't you think? I would guess. I mean, do you remember when we were at ESPN, we used to do that crazy – I don't think you were involved with it, but I used to every year we would have to write, who are the ten best running backs three years from now? Who are the, <laughs> I mean, we used to do yeah, these yeah, things yeah. like – in 2012, would write up the best teams and uh, players in the league three years in 2015, which I right. thought was the dumbest exercise ever. But he was my top running back. You know, I, I wrote up every position. His after his rookie year, I thought he would be the best running back in the league. What in 2015 or whatever? I mean, I loved this guy at Alabama. I thought he was, you know, almost Adrian Peterson without the quite the breakaway speed. And I was very impressed with him as a rookie with the Browns. And I shouldn't say this, but when the Colts traded for him, I said, okay, they got two-thirds of their triplets now. They got Luck, they got Richardson, you know, Wayne was still there. That, you know, they're going to have a foundation on offense for years to come. Well, you know, it just goes back to your point originally that it's hard to be good in this, this league's rough. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, the little bit of margin for error or a little bit of lack of conditioning or um, work ethic, and boom, you're gone. Yeah, you know, it was funny. that I was covering the uh, 49ers that that year in the week of the trade that the Colts were playing the Niners. And and the 49ers were like in a tizzy, like, oh, God, we already did our, you know, our, our defensive game plan, and now they got Trent Richardson. Like, they were really freaked out about it. Didn't seem to be a big problem. But, you know, I mean, the guy did have some carte blanche about him back then. There was, oh, there was, absolutely. There was a, yeah. Real interesting. Hey, um, back to contracts. I think we're going to probably be talking about this for a while because I don't know if it's ever going to get settled real soon. But, you know, there's still talk about Drew Brees and his contract not getting done. What would you do if you're a team? Because, I mean, obviously he, he's meant a lot to the franchise. But on the same hand, he doesn't have much time left. I mean, Saints are going to be in a tough spot, right? Because he can contribute now, but – how much how much longer can we think that this guy is going to be a starting quality quarterback? I still think he's really good, you know, and I think his style of play is going to be like a Brady or, you know, where you can just keep using your mind more than your brawn. Although we did just see Peyton Manning just fall off a cliff too, and he was that type of guy, you know, that but he, you know, Manning never had a good arm, even in his prime. And Brees doesn't have a cannon either, and he's smaller, but man, I still think he's good. I think that offense is going to be one of the best in the league this year. I really like what they've done this offseason to you know, put stuff around them. But I'm almost positive that he has the biggest cap hit in the whole league this year. And there hasn't been a team in the entire league that has managed the cap worse or, quote, 
lived for today and maxed out their credit cards more than the Saints. And Breeze has been a big reason why. You know, they won a Super Bowl because of it. You know, that so, you know, that goal was accomplished. But, boy, they've hamstrung themselves. You could look at it and say, we drafted Garrett Grayson last year. Let's move on. But I just don't think you can do that. I mean, I think you just have to keep living for today. And like you said, you know, like we talked about before, the windows are so short and things can change so quick. If you can get another big year out of, out of Breeze in the next two or three, and it's possible, the offense is intact, and I think the defense will look better. And we don't know what they think about Grayson. You know, I mean, by no means do I think he's, oh, they got the answer in the house, you know, that they drafted their guy right. and, you know, it's going to be far Darren Rodgers. So, so you go, hey, we're not going to be better than Tim Breeze. He's still got two, three quality years with this offense. Let's just roll with him. I think, you know, and yeah. hopefully you sign a little bit more team-friendly deal. Right, right. Well, you know, he's end up, he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame one day. I mean, fair to yeah. say, right? He's, he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think there's no doubt. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, Saturday we get to see the induction, the Hall of Fame induction. And, you know, it's always cool when quarterbacks get in because, we, you know, those are the guys that, you know, we all remembered as kids. And that's certainly the case for me, Ken Stabler. Ken Stabler may be a little past your a little before your time, but I'm sure you heard a lot of stories about him in Pittsburgh because, you, you know, there were some great battles there. And then, of course, the great Brett Favre. I mean, anything stick out to you about those two greats? Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of talk of is Stabler worthy. Um, the time was much different. I mean, you compare his numbers to Favre's or Manning. I mean, they're not even close. I mean, they're almost like two different sports. But if you compare it to the 70 Hall of Famers, they are right there. Like, right, right. I mean, a Bradshaw or those type of guys, too. Staubach. Anyone and like you said, I mean, yeah. I was born in 1973, which is, you know, basically a year before the Steelers got to be good and eventually great. And when I was old enough to know anything, five, six years old, it was taught to me, Matt, you hate the Raiders the most. You don't hate the Browns, the Bengals. You know, the, the, the team that you hate the most is the Raiders, you know, because they're the ones that have threaten us the most here in Pittsburgh. But if it wasn't us... What a compliment, titles, right? Right. I mean, it's a huge compliment. You know, and I remember my dad telling me when I was like, I don't know, 15 years old or so, uh, and uh, we were talking just about athletes and guys he'd seen, and he's like, Matt, if I could have any quarterback and everyone in this town would kill me, or if I could have any baseball player, I would take Pete Rose and I would take Ken Stabler. He said, they're the same guy. They're nasty. If the, the Reds were down a run in Pittsburgh, he'd get hit by a pitch or he would walk or he would single, then he'd steal second, and then he'd do, somehow get the third and he would score the winning run. Or, and he's like, the snake was the exact same guy, that when the chips were down, he was the best. Yeah, I mean, just you know, I'm I'm a little older than you. I'm, I was actually born in the Bay Area. I remember the you know, see a hands game, the Holy Roller, and you know, just Ken Stabler was just he was just something. You know, he was a real special athlete to have in the area. And you know, when he uh, when he died last year of cancer at the age of 69, you know, I wrote a lot about it. And a couple of my friends who were a little older than me came up to me that weekend and said, you know what, one's a 49ers fan, one's a Ram fan. I hated the 49ers. I hated the Raiders because I love the 49ers. I hated the Raiders because I love the Rams. But I love the snake. Everybody loves the snake. And, and he was just tremendous. I, 
I, I think the 70s is real golden era, real heyday of, of football, and, and those Raiders are a big part of it. You know, they only they only had that one Super Bowl in, in the 70s, but he's I, I, I think he's as big a name as anybody in 70s football. He was just fantastic. And, you know, they, they always say, you don't, you're not worthy of getting in the Hall of Fame unless they can write the history of the NFL without you. The history of the NFL doesn't get written without Kenny Snake Stabler. And, you know, so I think that's why there's so many people, it's so bittersweet that it's, he's going in after his death. Yeah, I think that's very well said, that he should have been in a couple of years ago. One thing just dawned on me, though, was Stabler and Favre, and obviously they're different generations, but imagine if back in those days there was Twitter and Facebook and you knew everyone's off-the-field stuff. <laughs> I mean, think about the red flags of Stabler coming out of Alabama or Favre coming out of Southern Miss, you know, and all the things they did off the field, like Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth and, you know, and, and you know, these great athletes that maybe he wouldn't maybe he wouldn't even got drafted because of all of his off the field concerns and partying and whatnot. But back then and I kinda miss this about sports, that endeared him to the public. That was part of his legend. I mean, you know yeah. his two famous quotes is I studied my playbook by the way of the jukebox and I was a low ball thrower and a high ball drinker. You know <laughs> if somebody said that today Right, imagine somebody said that. Yeah, what if Matt Ryan said that today? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, yeah, especially I, I got a chance to cover Favre, and he was a really fun guy to be around and just jaw-dropping to cover because he always always make the play in the fourth quarter. I mean, I, I think I was in 99, he had like, it seemed like a fourth-quarter comeback every week, and, and they weren't very good, and he had a broken thumb the whole year, and he was just a stud. And uh, both those guys are – it's going to be a lot of fun to see them go in this weekend. And, and absolute alpha dogs, you know what I mean? I mean, that was their team. They were the total studs, you know, played through pain. One of the most amazing things in my football lifetime is Favre's durability streak. Yeah, we're not going to see it again, are we? No way. No way. I mean, like Eli Manning has a nice streak, and Peyton had a little one go – you know, had a long one going. But, I mean, Favre played at Southern Miss – after a massive car accident and a big piece of his intestines taken out. He played the next week. Right. <laughs> you know, right. That's just what he was. It's crazy. Right, yeah. I remember I got him after a game once, and I'm like, what are you, are you worried about that thumb? He said, Mississippi mud, man. Don't worry about it. I got it spread all over it. He didn't care. <laughs> it's crazy. It was football season. He was playing. That was basically it. Yeah, yeah, and he's going to play 16 games every week, every year, no matter what, and well. And, you know, that was kind of what sucked about the way he ended his career because the injuries finally caught up to him, you know. And he, but he was, what, 40 years old. It was going to happen. Right, right. I, I think one of the remarkable stories of the last 10, 15 years, and it didn't quite get finished, but that Favre in Minnesota year, that first one, man, that was a lot of fun. They were, they it really was. Good and it was a great season. I, I mean, Sydney really turned Sydney Rice into a star, you know, and I think it's easy for people to forget, and maybe the younger guys listening don't even remember, but remember when he was winning MVP trophies every year, when he was in his prime, at his best, there was no question who the best player in football was. It was Brett Favre. Yeah, and I think I think we remember him a little more now for being so gritty and, and just tough more, more so than his ability. I think the gritty and tough works 
for Stabler, I don't think he was the, you know, we talked about, I don't think he was the most gifted player on the field, but Brett Favre was a real legit superstar ability quarterback. And they're both, you know, they both deserve a where they're going on Saturday, but Favre was, he had superstar ability. Oh, the most ability in the league. You know, he was a great athlete. He had a monster arm. He would load it up and throw it through people's, you know, throw it right through your body. He was so much fun to watch deliver the football with every ounce of muscle he had in his body. And then if you remember, I mean, and maybe he played it up for the cameras, but I'm sure you've seen some of the NFL films with him. Like, well, when I got to Green Bay and I sat down with Mariucci and Gruden and Andy Reid and those guys, I didn't even know what nickel was. You know, people you know, yeah. people would say, what's nickel? I mean, you know, they'd tell him, well, we take a linebacker off the field and we put a corner on. He's like, who cares about that? I'm just still going to hit the open guy. Right. I mean, I, I can say this story now because he's admitted it, but uh, somebody told somebody told me that Matt Hasebeck, early in his career, told him that they were in a meeting and Brett was like, seriously, I, I don't know what nickel means. I'm like, oh, Yeah, he said it on TV, right. And, and, and then he after, told him, he's like, who cares about that? What's the difference? And this is after he won the three MVPs in a row. <laughs> right, right. He would just shake his head in quarterback meeting rooms, like, sure, Mooch, whatever, yeah. He's just going to hit the open <laughs> yeah. guy. So, yeah, I mean, he was total one-of-the-time type of guy. And I think his speech is going to be fantastic on uh, Saturday night. It's going to be a long one because that dude, he can talk. And, and he likes uh, spotlight. I think he's really going to enjoy it. So, anyway, hey, you know, I saw um, a tweet by you last week where you talked about Julio Jones and his importance to the Falcons. And who, who do you think is the most indispensable receiver in the league on to their particular team? Is it him? Probably, because that offense just has so little without him. Odell Beckham's in the conversation, too. I mean, when I look at the receivers in the NFL, who are, who's the best wide receiver in the NFL? I think it's Julio, Odell, or Antonio Brown. And I think I would put right. Brown number one right now. But I think the Steelers' offense without him could still be mediocre, you know, especially if they would have Martavis Bryant or, you know, Le'Veon Bell not suspended or whatever. But it is important to their team – I mentioned Des Bryant earlier, you know, just because, but I think it has to be Julio or it has to be Odell. And you can have a long conversation of who's the most important non-quarterbacks in the league, you know, J.J. Watt or, you know, there's, there's a lot of these guys that, boy, their team can absolutely not afford to lose them. But I think Odell and Julio are right at the top of the list. Yeah, interesting. I don't know if Julio Jones gets that type of credit around the league. Maybe it's because, you know, he plays in Atlanta, hasn't been on the playoff too. team in a few years. I mean, probably we say he's kind of an underrated guy. Because, yes, I mean, if people don't consider him the very best at what he does or a 1B to Antonio Brown, then he's underrated because he's that good. And if you draw up a wide receiver from scratch, if you build a Frankenstein wide receiver, I want it to be Julio Jones. Interesting. Well, they they paid for him, that's for sure, that monster trade. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it's worked out. I mean, he's been everything they've wanted him to be, although they never won the big one without him, and they had a lot of depth issues because of not having those all those picks they gave up. So that's a tough one to look back and say, did they win that deal or not? But it certainly has not been Jones' fault if they didn't. Right, right. 
Hey, this was another receiver question. You know, Hopkins was out in uh, in Houston for a day or so with his contract squabbles. Not figured out yet, but he's back in camp. How important to that team is he? I think he is a tier below those three I just mentioned. And he's not nearly as gifted as a Julio or a Dez or, you know, these prototype guys. But his ball skills are amazing. He, everyone in the stadium knew that he was the focal point of that offense last year, and he still was a dominant player. Uh, I mean, I think he's great, but not elite, you know, if that makes sense. Sure. And th- I give them credit, and this goes back to them having a good GM, that they've finally putting some pieces around that if by chance he were to go out, it wouldn't be an Odell or a Julio situation where, you know, the sky's totally falling. I mean, I think Jalen Strong can be a quality player. They use a first-round picket on wide receiver. So, you know, they were running backs that can catch the ball. So they're starting to build things other than Hopkins. But he deserves big money. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, obviously scouting is a you know huge part of your life and a passion. And and this weekend we saw a, a former great player, Brian Dawkins, join the Eagles scouting department. And we, we just don't really see that happen too often where great former players become scouts. You see them become coaches now and again, and certainly you know, some front office folks. But uh, to be a scout, I mean, does that, does that catch your eye? Were you impressed by that? Yeah, I mean, I think it shows a true love for the game. And watching Dawkins play, that's not surprising. You know, I mean, I bet he loves football. I mean, he got every ounce that he could out of the game and his opportunity to play the game. I mean, obviously the big thing is if you go from player to coach or scout, it's quite the pay decrease. (laughs) I mean, he's not making... Yeah, he's not getting ten million guaranteed to scout. You know, I mean, he's not getting he's getting a hundred grand or something. You know, I mean, he's doing it because he loves it and maybe he needs money. I mean, that's a, a good job for the average guy. You know, me, you, whoever, uh, in terms of right. financial compensation. But it's not anything close to a player, of course. And it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's also right. ten times more hours than a player. <laughs> I mean, you're you're never at home. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a legit grind job, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And now that you mentioned, though, I should mention, the year I was at the Browns, one of our scouts, you know, one that our, you know, a major scout for us was Paul Warfield, you know. And obviously when he played, he didn't make Brian Dawkins money or close to what they're making today. You know, he needed the money. But, you know, he, he went from Hall of Fame player to, you know, scout and a very good one. Is that right? Interesting. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Hey, well, we're about to close up the No Relation NFL podcast with Matt Bill Williams, and I wanted to hit two more topics. Uh, Willie Young gets a contract in Chicago. Um, this is a guy who's really kind of turned it on late. I mean, you don't see that too often, right? I mean, good good for him that, you know, kind of taking advantage of, of a chance in Chicago. Uh, who's that? Uh, you broke up there for one second, Bill. I didn't hear you. Oh, Willie Young? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's a quality edge player. I think their front seven in general is pretty darn good now. You know, I think their secondary is a nightmare, but that's another good GM job in Chicago, that they have a lot of different pieces in their front seven. They've rebuilt it very well over two off seasons. I think it's actually a strength of the team now. He's probably going to be a rotational borderline starter, try to keep him fresh. 
depending how they use Leonard Floyd, um, but a quality guy. I mean, uh, the type of guy that any team would love to have, and pass rushers are, don't grow on trees. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, this is we, we talk about all the stars, but the league is really about the, the mid-level guys because the way salary cap is you have to have depth and you have to be strong, you know, in the, the number 15 to 30 range of your roster. And, uh, you know, going back to another one of your t- tweets, like the Julio Jones thing I saw yesterday, you are talking about you think Virgil Green can step it up in Denver at tight end, and they certainly could use somebody at that position. You think he's following the lights going to go on for him? Maybe. You know, I feel like he hasn't been used right either. Like, if you go back, his combine numbers are unbelievable. I mean, they're elite for a tight end coming into the league. And too often he's been used as the, quote, blocking tight end, you know. And uh-huh. uh, that was, you know, that tweet was a little bit through fantasy-colored, you know, goggles, you know, that who's uh-huh. – there's, there's obviously room in that passing game for a third option to step up. There's not a great number three receiver in Denver – there's not a tight end that's, you know, clearly the starter. So if anybody could hit big, and that was kind of for fantasy reasons, I think it would be green. And they used a second-round pick on Hireman out of Ohio State last year. I'm wishy-washy on him. I mean, obviously they probably like him a lot more than I do. Um, but that style of offense they run can be very tight end friendly. And I, I think that one of those guys could hit real big. With, and if it's anyone, in my opinion, it's going to be green. Well, you know, Gary Kubiak has always had success with the tight end. It's a big part of his deal. So, I mean, he might right. be onto something there. Right, right. I mean, like I said, it's a very tight end friendly offense. Yeah. Well, cool. Hey, is there anything you want to add? Do we miss anything? I don't think. You know, yeah. I, I'm, a lot going on in both our lives right now. You've been on the road a lot. I'm about to hit the road, and you know, we'll have plenty to talk about next week, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'll be at um, – the Chargers camp this week. I know that you're high on them, and then I'll be uh, in Denver for our next podcast. So uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So everybody appreciate it. The second one is in the books. I think we're doing good. I'm, I'm happy to have Matt working with me, and I'm uh, happy everybody's listening. So until next week, that is the No Relation NFL podcast with Matt and Bill Williamson.